The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Hi, everyone. Today's guest felt like a cosmic connection from the start. I could barely believe that I was talking to this incredible woman in person. Dr. Edith Eager is a sought-after clinical psychologist and lecturer, helping individuals discard their limitations, discover their powers of self-renewal, and achieve things that they previously thought unattainable. Using her own past as a Holocaust survivor and thriver as a powerful analogy, she inspires people to tap their full potential and shape their very best destinies. Her first book, The Choice, became a New York Times bestseller beloved by Oprah and thousands of readers, which detailed her experience during the Holocaust and invites readers to join her in moving from recovery to discovery and beyond. In her most recent release book, The Gift, she offers a hands-on practical guide that encourages readers to change the thoughts and behaviors that may be keeping them imprisoned in the past. And I cannot recommend them highly enough. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Dr. Eager. I'm so happy to see you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello, 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 beautiful lady yeah, in Hollywood. And, ooh. Uh, ooh. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Where am I finding you? Are you in La Jolla? In La Jolla, yes. So beautiful down there. I am very lucky to have an ocean view in the front and a canyon view in the back. Um, wow. I'm very, 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 very fortunate and grateful to be interviewed by someone who I'm going to call the Renaissance woman. You do so many things wow. in so many ways, and, and you're a very good role model to young people. Never stop, you know, just pick an arrow and follow that arrow and see how you can make a difference and bring love into the world and, most of all, how we can empower each other with our differences. Well, that's so beautiful and touching. And I've already put quite a bit of tissue next to me in anticipation. I already feel very emotional. And I want to get this out of the way before we start with anything is I have sort of a routine that I normally talk to people about and things that I would normally ask. And I feel self-conscious that you have been through so much that some of the questions seem silly or trite. But then I'm reminded about the fact that you are the same woman who said that we are meant to celebrate life and who found herself in the Holocaust. And you said you even had a boob contest and that you won. Is that right? So if we're going to have a good time, you're the girl to do it with. And I think let's just fire away, right? Yes, I think it's so important to have humor philosophical humor, not sarcasm or cynicism. That is so important that we had to keep each other alive 
because all we had was each other then, and all we have is each other now. And so I consider talking to an ambassador like you, who will speak up and be a wonderful role model, how to be a survivor and never a victim of anything or anyone or any circumstance. Yeah. So tell me something. How have you been doing recently? How's your headspace been? Well, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for Zoom mm-hmm. because I don't have to get dressed. All I have to do is every day I put on a different wonderful scarf and mm-hmm. uh, I don't have to travel. I don't have to stand in line. I'm always looking for a gift in everything. And I came here to tell you that I found love in Auschwitz, that all we had was each other there, and all we have is each other now. So people don't come to me, they're sent to me. And and I, I read about you, that you're an amazing woman of strength. You're not a strong woman, you're a woman of strength. Because what happened in Auschwitz, nothing came from the outside. We had to find the power within us and not to ever allow the enemy to murder our spirit. So I bring you that spirit today that sometimes you don't appreciate what you have until it's taken away from you. And my mother told me in the cattle car, We don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put here in your own mind. Right. That was so powerful for me to read. So for anyone who's not familiar with your story, you went to Auschwitz with your family when you were only 16 years old. Yes. Right? And it was you and your sister and your parents? My sister Magda was with me. My sister Clara was already in a camp, and her Christian professor by the name of Waldbauer smuggled her out and hid her until the end of the war. And when I came home in 1945 from Vienna to Prague, I saw advertisements of my sister giving a concert. Because she was a musician, right? Yes, a brilliant brilliant, brilliant uh, person who played the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto when she was at a very young age, like six years old. Wow. And yeah. you did you grow up always loving to dance? I, I grew up always wanting to dance, yes, and wanting to be a gymnast as well. And that's what gave me the opportunity to be asked to dance for Dr. Mengele when he came into the barracks and wanted to be entertained. I didn't know what's going to happen next, and I was hoping that I will not be sent to the gas chamber. And that was very, very difficult when we didn't know what's going to happen next. Right. We are now in a very difficult position. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
Right. You talked about obviously being separated from your parents very early on and then having to implore the mental strength and the emotional strength and dive deep and remember something that your mom said that you cited earlier, which was that no matter what happens to any of us, that we cannot be robbed of what is inside. And in that moment, you had to literally dance both figuratively and literally for this person who had just taken your parents from you. And I can't imagine the strength that that must have taken for a young girl who was only 16 years old to literally dance for her life. You know, one of the things that can happen to you is that you give up your true self and then it's just like Shakespeare. They put you on stage and you'll be the smart one, you'll be the pretty one, and you'll be the... The funny one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they give you a name, and then you fit into the family dynamics. That's why when my son-in-law got the Nobel Prize in economics, I found out that most of the Nobel Prize winners are either firstborn children or only children. You hit the nail on the head. Listen, there's a lot of sort of selfish reasons that I'm interested to talk to you today, too. Reading this book really resonated with me beyond just being excited to talk to you as a guest on the podcast, because I think you have so much value and insight to share for so many of us. And let's get it out of the way. Nobody can compare. Like you said in your book, you don't want people to compare what you went through to what people are going through every day. But to be reminded that if you went through that, that we can certainly go forward and move forward in our own lives. I think it's so interesting for us to really talk about and dissect the roles that we choose to play. Not an only child. I am the eldest child. I'm the only girl. And the podcast is really all about redefining what success and happiness mean to us. And so much about what you've written in this book, which is called The Gift, 12 Lessons to Save Your Life, is about the conflation of accomplishment and worth. And I'm really excited to talk to you about all of those things. But I don't know if this is even something that you would have been able to be affected by or to give thought to, but the notion of having it all that we're sold as women, is that something that you bought into at all? I mean, certainly not at that stage of your life, but... You just brought up a patient of mine that came and told me the following. I was inappropriately touched, but I don't know how to tell you because you were in Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. And my answer, you were more in prison than I was because I knew the enemy. Wow. So, you know, don't try to compare. Mm -hmm. Suffering makes you stronger if you really hopefully can make it. And my parents were sent to the gas chamber. They didn't have a chance. But I know that we had to be a family of inmates because all we had was each other there and all we have is each other now. So that's why I hope to be a good role model to young people and ask yourself a question 
when did your childhood end? Because many times children have to take care of the parents' needs, especially if you're an immigrant. You know, my little two-year-old taught me how to speak English and how to eat tuna fish and how to eat butter, whatever. Peanut butter. Peanut butter. Peanut butter. Peanut butter. Mm-hmm. But I, by the way, it's good to get rid of always and never. Those are absolutistic words and say, in the past I did this. Because if mm-hmm. you don't learn from history, we'll have a tendency to repeat it, unfortunately. People don't learn from history, and they keep going back to the familiar. I worked with a woman who was about to marry her fifth alcoholic husband. Do you think that's an accident? I think we have a pattern. Yes, a pattern. And some people have a pattern. They have a need to be needed. So they pick someone who have the need to be taken care of. It's very important that you marry someone and you come from an agenda. One woman told me, I'm going to make him want to stop drinking. He's already addicted, you know. He's already married to the addiction. And that's why when you are in a 12-step program, you want to know in what way you can be part of this family because only the first step has to do with addiction. The last of it, all other 11, has to do with growing up. And that's mm-hmm. why I, I respect very much, and I ask everyone to go through the 12-step program, even if they don't have any addiction of any kind, because it helps you to be in charge of your thinking, feeling, and your behavior. Right. Dr. Eager, one thing in reading your story, obviously, so you were in the camp for about a year in total, or was it more than that? I always say the following. Never in the history of mankind such a scientific and systematic annihilation of people existed when 15 highly educated people celebrated at the end of the day that they can put 30,000 Jews in the oven in one day. So I am part of that final solution when Hungary was taken over by the Germans in May 1944. I arrived in Auschwitz in May, and I was liberated May 4th, 1945. It's my birthday. Oh, my God. How wonderful. How wonderful. See, people don't come to me. They're sent to me. So you're adopted. And anytime you... I'm going to come visit you in La Jolla. Just call me. Just call me, Grandma. I wonder, because I want to segue into, you know, a lot of what you talk about in the book, which is about you went through not even presumably, but ostensibly what is the worst possible atrocity that anyone could ever imagine. And yet what you say in your book is that the prison that we put ourselves in, in our minds, is actually worse. 
And I want to talk about that because that feels like an incredibly powerful statement. Yes, 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 it is. And the way you get up in the morning and the way you talk to yourself can change your whole body chemistry. When I heard this woman telling me, how can I tell you because you were in Auschwitz? Mm -hmm. And I told her that no one really can touch you and do anything to you unless you allow it. And unfortunately, many, many, many people don't really pay enough attention to their self-dialogue. And I hope you will do that because what you say to yourself, see what you think you create, it's called the negative self-fulfilling prophecy. I always do that. I'm never going to get well. I'm always going to find the worst person. Well, sure enough, that's what you do. You find the reverse person. It's better to say to yourself that I'm going to write down all the things I want from a life mate, a soulmate, and I become that person. So the probability for you to attract what you dish out, do that. I am, and I am powerful, and I am sensual, and I am beautiful, and I am the only one. I am uh, one of the kind. I'll never have another me ever. A lot of yeses, not yes, but, yes, but. Get rid of the but and say, and, yes, and. And I'm growing, and I am climbing a mountain, and I never stop climbing. I know that your time there has afforded you to have this insight into how we as humans can self-sabotage by not, like you said, practicing those affirmations, by not attracting what we want, by being fear-based. But during your time in Auschwitz, were you in a mental space to conceptualize what you wanted for your life after escape? Could you think that far ahead or did you just concentrate on surviving every day? I was told every day that I'm cancer to society, that I'm never going to get out of here alive. And I can tell you that I was able to change hate to pity and began to really think of my boyfriend. And I mm -hmm. would ask everyone, tell me about my hand and tell me about my eyes, because my boyfriend told me I have beautiful eyes and I have beautiful hands. And that's what I said to myself, if I survive today, then tomorrow I'm going to meet my, my boyfriend. And... Uh, we were very, actually, serious teenagers. We had our own book club, and we had a lot of hope for the future for the two of us. And uh, unfortunately, he was killed the day before liberation. Okay. So when, when my grandson was asking me, uh, tell me your story, tell me your story, and I always tell something to my grandson that has a good ending. Mm -hmm. Whatever I tell you, somebody died. Right. <laughs> right, okay. So right. I, I wanted my grandson to know that the Americans came, mm -hmm. and I actually know now 
uh, the person who was part of the 71st Infantry, and uh, his name is Ellen Maskin, who was liberating me on May 4th, 1945. You describe that scenario, though, as once the 71st Infantry came, that even after being quote-unquote liberated, that so many of the people that you were with almost sat down because they didn't know how to move forward, right? They physically, I'm sure, also having had gone through torture and starvation, they didn't have the will. But I want to talk about how people still do this to themselves, you know, in much lesser ways, that people get broke down or feel defeated or feel lost and they lose their will to push forward. You know, and I know we're talking about different ends of the spectrum. And, and again, it's never going to be as serious as that. But to your point, this is something that we do inside. How do people who feel defeated and who don't have the urge to go on find that source within themselves again? The will to live is very, very strong. I was in a hospital three years ago, and... I had to be intubated. That means that they put something in your mouth. It's very bad. And I wanted to take it out. So they tied my hands. And I asked my daughter to bring me a piece of paper. And I wrote down, I want to die happy. And she still has that paper. And so I got up in the morning and the doctor said, I'm going to take it out tomorrow. And so I was ready to wait for the tomorrow. And at night I said to myself, you know, just a little more and a little more. And the following day came and the doctor said, I want to wait one more day. Mm -hmm. And I, I was so sad because I got ready for today and that was that. And that night, I said to myself, I did it in Auschwitz. I can do it here. Mm -hmm. See, Auschwitz was a place where you were able to, to learn how to be your own good parent. And yes, I can, and yes, I will. And then the following day came, and... He took the thing out, and I'm here talking to you. So I think it's very good to pay attention what you're paying attention to. Mm -hmm. If you say anything to anyone, ask yourself, is it kind? Mm -hmm. is, is it really important? Don't tell your mother she's fat. She already knows that. Just <laughs> change the but to yes and mm -hmm. yes. So are you kind to you? Are you true to yourself? And be sure that what you want from others and see how you can truly. So one thing that I normally talk to people about is the idea of designing a life that suits them and that speaks to all of their interests and 
for them not to minimize themselves to fit into some sort of capacity that's not intended for them, but to build out a life that will encapsulate all of them. And I think that even that notion is based on the luxury of having the ability to choose. And we know from your situation, early days, that your life went on an uncharted course that you could never have anticipated. But I read that you also, well into your 40s, went back to college. And then after that, you know, continued with getting a master's in educational psychology and a doctorate in clinical psychology. And I applaud you, first of all, because so many people get to a stage of their lives and they think, oh, well, that ship has sailed or I didn't do that. I'm so impressed by that. And I'd love to talk to you about what drove you to do that. Well, I remember when I was talking to my supervisor and uh, he told me to go get a doctorate. And I told him it's impossible because by the time I get a doctorate, I'm going to be at least 50 and more. And uh, he said, told me, you'll be 50 anyway. So It's um, true. That's so important, right? You're going to be 50 anyway. Would you rather have the doctorate or not? See, time doesn't heal is what you do with that time. Mm-hmm. People tell you, okay, time heals. I don't think so. Right. That's so important, too, what you said. Time does not heal just with the passive passage of time unless you are involved with actively trying to rewrite your future, right? I think many people will come to you and if you hear the word, I need you, run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Run. Needy relationships are negative. Be a whole person in your own only have a baked potato, become emotionally and financially independent before you get married. And then you marry your equal. Because in my time, if I said I want to be a doctor, someone said because you couldn't find a husband. Mm-hmm. You see, you get very different messages as a child. But I think uh, the girls get the message to find somebody because you're nobody until somebody loves you. Remember that song? You're in Hollywood. Of course. Uh, you're nobody till somebody it's a, ter- it's a terrible message, right? That's a horrible it song. It is. I am a somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There were a few allusions in your book to resentments you had towards Bella with your husband, right? I talk about when people ask me, did you love your husband? Did you love Bela? And I'm thinking and thinking and wondering, what is really going on here? What can I say without lying? And I came up by saying I was very skinny, I was very lonely, and I was very hungry. And someone bought me Hungarian salami. That's mm-hmm. what they did. What do you mean, love your husband? I didn't know what love is. Right. And how long were you married? Because, like you're saying, this was not only was this a different time, but you were in a much different place. But what I was going to ask 
there, what you sort of answered very succinctly in the way that you just answered that was, I felt that maybe some of the resentments were misplaced because you felt restricted in what you could accomplish yourself. Yes, I, I, I began to unfortunately recognize that I had faulty expectations, that I either became his mother mm -hmm. or... And mothers ask questions, how are you, how was your day, and why don't you put a sweater on, and why don't you do that? So I forbid women, don't ask questions and don't give advice if you ever want to have good sex, because it's hard <laughs> to go to bed. Okay. So no questions no, and no advice, right? Mm -hmm. okay. So I think that they say nobody wants to mm their mother, right? So, and then, unfortunately... I didn't have an ED eager to go to, so mm -hmm. I divorced my husband. And then people say, but you went back to him. I said, no, no. I married him as a child, and this time I was a woman to a man. Mm -hmm. So be sure that you are an adult and you ask for what you want, and you learn how to negotiate and compromise and be a, an adult, you want a whole baked potato, not a half-baked one. Right. Okay, I think that that's, that's a very good advice. So something that you talk about in your book is that your therapeutic approach is based on four principles. One, that we suffer most when we think we have no efficacy in our lives, right? When we give up the power and we say, no matter what, like, this is just what it is. It's never going to change. Number two, our thoughts create our behavior. Number three, unconditional positive self-regard. And this feels really in line with what we talk about a lot on the podcast, as I think that we live in a time now where we feel the need to justify our worth and it feels so much more intense, I think, even with social media. And, and I think young people today, I don't know that they have that unconditional self-regard that you reference. And then four, our worst experiences can be our best teachers. And you are living proof of that. But do you find that those principles help you with all of your work as a psychologist? I think that people many times think what they are and compare it with what they do. I cannot change the person who you are, but I can change your attitude towards you. The only thing you can change is your behavior. So if you tell me that you want to lose weight and I will tell you what you can do about it, and then you come back and tell me, I don't think I'm ever going to lose weight because I like a Hungarian chocolate cake and I'm just not about to give it up. So what, what is happening is using words like always, never, but no, none of the positive thinking does any good unless it's followed with a positive action. So if you tell me tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell my precious precious, precious girl, Katie girl, who makes me a cappuccino, mm -hmm. the best cappuccino in the world, 
and I'm going to ask her not to put sugar in it. So mm -hmm. any positive thinking does nothing unless it's followed with a positive action. Right. And you say we do not change until we're ready to do so, though, right? So no one can really make us change unless we, we ourselves are ready. Yes, exactly. That is so, so correct. And the only one you can change is you, not to change another person. So what happens with Auschwitz? I call it my cherished wound. Your cherished wound, right. Because that's where you really, you say that's where you learn to live at a death camp. Yeah, Auschwitz taught me curiosity and what's going to happen next and not to allow the enemy to ever murder my spirit. And that's what I bring you, and that's who you are. You are the ambassador for women to make it and not stopping and not to get stuck in it. And I always wanted to know what's going to happen next. I never considered suicide. You know, you, you have so many good chapters in this book and you talk about different parts of it. And, and one thing that you say that was really interesting too, is the adage of, I think you refer to it as you can't sit on one chair with two butts. Yeah. That's, they, right? that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They use the word. Yes. You can't sit with one behind on two chairs because you get half as here and half as there. And so don't try to do too many things all at once. Maybe you can have it, but not at the same time. Is that how you feel about the idea of career and family and, and all the rest of it? Because I know you talk about in your book, I could say that that's something that is maybe more pressure today, but really you even talk about a time in the upbringing of your children where you feel like, you, I think with your middle daughter, that you felt like a sense of guilt for not being able to be there for her as much because you had a son who had different needs that had to be tended to. Plus you were going back to school and you were traveling for work and you had patience. And how do you navigate all of that without sitting on multiple chairs with one ass? You have to structure time. Time is everything. It's a four-letter word. Time for me, time for me and you, time for me. And I worked with a man who had 10 children. He was actually invited to the Pope. And he negotiated with the 10 children to have their own time. The Spanish said, Asus Ordenas, I am going to do what you want to do. So if your child wants to listen to crazy music that you hate, you can do it for 20 minutes. So you learn to negotiate and compromise, and uh, each child will be treated according to their temperament. And I know that I like the big band because I was liberated and I was taught the big band music. Mm -hmm. And you, your generation calls it uh, elevator music or supermarket music. Right. But you might hate some of the music I like. Yeah, I, I may do that. I know that many times I am invited and 
there is a wedding or and there is dancing and I and and I do whatever it's called for. But mm-hmm. if you ask me who I like, I'm gonna talk about Frank Sinatra, I'm gonna talk about Bing Crosby and people that I met in nineteen forty five when I was liberated and the GI taught me how to dance boogie woogie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Boogie yes. woogie. Well, also they say, you know, once a dancer, always a dancer. And something that you say in the closing of your book is really that we all have to dance through life. You know, and I think that's such a beautiful sentiment, too. See, what happened that I could not change the outer environment, but at night I was dancing with my boyfriend and that they couldn't take away from me. So I was able to survive the day and no one could change my dreamer at night. Right. Yes. And that's what helped me to make it survive when I never knew what's going to happen next. And thank God I was liberated on May 4th And I ended up in a hospital, and I realized when I woke up that my parents are not coming back. I was told that my boyfriend was killed the day before liberation, so I became very suicidal. They put me in a cast, and I could not laugh. I had tremendous pain in my chest. I want to believe that 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 spirit talked to me and told me that if you die, you're not going to know what's going to happen next. So all of a sudden, I was for something rather than against. I did not go and try to look for the Nazis. I am a member of the healing arts profession. When I work with women and cancer, the doctors do the curing, and I teach them how to do the healing. Because healing is what I learned in Auschwitz. In the darkest places, I found a way to never, ever be a victim. And telling myself it's temporary, I don't like it, it's inconvenient, and it's temporary, not but. Any behavior you pay attention to, you're going to reinforce that behavior. Right. You also say, we cannot heal what we don't feel, right? Yeah, I hold your little hand, and Mm -hmm. we're going to a journey of feeling, grieving, You cannot heal what you don't feel. Don't medicate grief. It's a natural reaction to a loss. But don't get stuck in there. And that's why I went back to Auschwitz to reclaim my innocence, to assign the shame and guilt to the perpetrator. Dr. Eager, you talk about a time You were sort of well into your training. I'm imagining this is in your 40s. You're married. You have children. I don't think you were maybe 
doing a lot of healing or feeling at the time, right? And you were just kind of running around and trying to do everything perfectly. And because that's something that we talk about a lot, I wonder in your professional opinion, what do you think keeping things perfect or tendency towards perfectionism does in terms of either mitigating sense of discontrol or why do you think as women, especially, we tend to do that in our efforts almost to run away from the real issues at hand? If you study the brain, the corpus callosum is built differently in a man. That's why we call men thick-headed. They want to understand everything. The word understand. I think we women go into the heart. And, you know, how you feel when this and this happens, rather than having a drink and medicate feelings. So I think it's very important to study the brain and see in which way you can be um, a perfectionist, because perfectionism can bring you procrastination. If you if you check out the movie, The Gone with the Wind uh, uh, is really a beautiful movie because it gives you different characters, a kind of a Jungian way. It's, it's brilliantly done, even though it's a fiction. So she is the hysterical woman, and she says, even though the Yankees are coming and war is going on and people are starving. And she says, I think about it tomorrow. Remember when the husband is leaving? Because when he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn. I know this word. He said, but that is tomorrow. And Tara, so it's, it's important to get rid of perfectionism, it takes courage. It takes courage to really study patriotism. Do you think in your own life that you were sort of exercising self-preservation by trying to do it all and be it all and not giving way to the feelings that you didn't want to deal with? It was sort of an avoidance, right? Every day, in some ways, you can do more than you did yesterday. You know, maybe today you want to go and uh, take a lesson in belly dancing. Maybe mm-hmm. something that you just just for the fun of it. It doesn't have to prove anything to anyone at any time. Uh, you don't have to prove anything. If you want to prove anything, you're still a prisoner. Right. So it's about freeing ourselves from the need to please other people, right? It's freeing ourselves from the need to wear more than one face. And that when we choose to be honest with ourselves, it's actually going to lighten the load so much because we don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to try to please other people beyond our own natural inclination. It's very important to take a journey that you revisit the places where you've been. 
and you relive that experience, but you're not there, you're here with me. I provide that atmosphere for you so you can revise your life. So you take back your power and that's the work I do and that's the theory I created when I talk about the, the therapy and call it the choice therapy. Right. I love, you know, the choice was embracing the possible and then the gift is almost like a practical application. Yeah. Did you know that you would be releasing that during COVID? Or was that sort of something that just happened? I had no idea because, because after the choice, people kept telling me that I'm not done, mm -hmm. that I have to have something more practical. Mm -hmm. See, for many years, people asked me to write a book, and I would say, I have nothing to say. How could you say that? I, I said that, and Philip Zimbardo, who wrote the foreword in The Choice, said to me, Edie, the people who survived and famous are all men. Mm -hmm. We need a female voice. See, I am the female voice of Viktor Frankl, but I'm not Viktor Frankl. He was no. in his studies. He was an MD in Auschwitz, and I was 16 in Mula. So you are the one and only. You. It's so interesting that you wrote the handbook and the practical guide during a time where the rug was pulled out from a lot of people, right? So you talk about identity and so many people were stripped of their identity and their jobs and their homes and some of the outward markers of success. It seems like so poignant, the timing, even though I know that wasn't what was intended. How can you look at the COVID as a gift? Mm -hmm. Well, I would love to ask you that question because I always say to people, I know how much we've lost, but what do you feel that you've gained over this last year? And I would love to know you personally what you feel you've gained aside from not having to get dressed every day. I think that the COVID is the best thing that can happen to a couple. Mm -hmm. And it's called time out, like in football. And the time out means that you take stock of you, whether you empower each other or you deplete each other, whether you know how to negotiate and compromise and give and take and tolerating differences. This is the best time to regroup and mm -hmm. re-decide. Don't go back. Have a new beginning. Love conquers all, yes. Do you believe that, that love conquers all? I do. I do believe that we're born with love. But most of all, if you want to have happiness, I think there is one word you want to consider is joy. Have joy in your life. That's what happy means to me. I, I want to read a little bit from what you conclude the book with. It's just such a beautiful passage. But life, even with its inevitable trauma, pain, grief, misery, and death, is a gift. A gift we sabotage when we imprison ourselves in our own fears of punishment, failure, and abandonment. In our need for approval, in shame and blame, in superiority and inferiority. To celebrate the gift of life is to find the gift in everything. And that happens, even the parts that are difficult and that we're not sure we can survive. 
Yes. Honey, I love when you say this too. Honey, may you also choose to give up the prison and do the work to be free. Yes. To find in your suffering your own life lessons, to choose which legacy the world inherits, to hand down the pain or pass down the gift. Dr. Eager, I'm so happy to have talked to you today. What would be your version of what having it all would look like to you today, knowing what you know? And you are now 92? 93. I'll be 94 in September. You don't look a day over 70. Thank you. I think young. I think, uh, you know what? Let me do it again. You don't look a day over 50. You don't look a day over 50. I live in the present. Mm -hmm. I can only touch you now. I think we all have a choice. What was happening in Auschwitz that we were completely shaved. Mm -hmm. And my sister looked at me and asked me, how do I look? And I am realizing that I became the mirror for my sister. And I had a choice then as you have a choice now to pay attention what you lost or what you still have. Mm -hmm. Thank God I was not a psychologist then. I didn't think so much, but I said to Magda, Magda, you have such beautiful eyes. And I didn't see it when you had all the hair all over the place. See? What a beautiful thing to say. I wasn't lying either. Mm -hmm. So before you say anything, ask yourself whether it's really very important, whether it's really, really necessary, but most of all, is it kind? If it's not kind, don't say it. Dr. Eager, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, with everything going on and the rise in anti-Semitism, I, I don't know if there's been any incidents down in San Diego or I'm sure you're aware of everything that's going on. As someone who has gone through what we would like to think is the worst possibility, what does this look like to you? What does this feel like? I will never give up hope. And yet I had a tremendous amount of pain on January 6th. Mm-hmm. When they were wearing a shirt called Six Million was not enough. Not enough. Uh-huh. It, uh, it was very sad for me to hear yesterday on the news that someone beat up a man who obviously looked Jewish. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But things like that are sad after Nazi Germany and Communist Russia. And yet I hoped somehow that people will speak up as you and I, wanting people to to bring out the best in us and to be able to, to build a world that you can be you and I can be I. But together we're going to be so much stronger. And when I read Anne Frank, and many people call me, and Frank who didn't die. I still believe that you have to be taught to hate. You're not born, not born with hate. Yes, I will never give up hope that someday is going to be always in my mind 
the time when I met Dr. Martin Luther King in 1963, and I was singing with the mamas and the papas. What? But we went from the University of Texas, went up uh, to to march with Martin Luther King. So love is not what you feel, it's what you do. And what you do, you commit yourself to someone other than you. That's what it took then. I have a goal to do everything in my power that your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, I have seven of those, will wow. never, never ever experience what I did. I have, I have twins. I have twins. How cute. Oh, my gosh. What a beautiful family. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Eager, thank you so much for all your time and wisdom today and your beauty and the butterflies and the shawl and your humor. Thank you for taking the time. I'm so happy to have met you. Thank you. And you're adopted. to meet you in person one day. And I'm, yes, you're my adopted grandmother. Let's come, 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 come to La Jolla. I will. I thank will come you. down there very soon. It's very nice to see you. I hope you take care. For anybody who wants, I'm going to link actually your books um, in my Amazon shop so they can order them and they can follow you along on Instagram and at, um, what is your website? Uh, edithegar.com. Edithegar.com. And I will, I will link everything too. Thank you so much. Thank Lots you. of love and light and talk to you soon. God bless you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Having It All and Other Lies is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Bigas. You can follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore Riff and the show at Having It All Podcast. See you next week.